So as I mentioned over the last few weeks, we're going to be looking at the seven I am statements. So talk that we really need to always start with context. So we're going to start with context broadly of the, the gospel of John. So the, this is the fourth gospel in the New Testament. You'll see the first three are called synoptics. So they have a very um, similar wording. John is one in, it, in its own. It's very different from the other three gospels. And his purpose was to show that eternal life comes through the Son of God. And he was aiming to prove conclusively that Jesus from Bethlehem was the Son of God, that John himself was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, that he walked with him through his ministry. So to understand the text today that we're looking at, we really need to understand the metaphors that are getting um, presented in the passage that us in the west probably don't understand what it was like to be in the ancient near east as a shepherd so um to start we need to understand that we are the sheep in the in the metaphor right and sheep are not intelligent animals at all one of the least intelligent animals that they could have picked for a metaphor okay so routinely sheep will wander off from their shepherd completely defenseless against prey. There are even stories of sheep walking straight into an open fire to their destruction. They're timid and stubborn. Oftentimes they they won't fear the things that they should, and other times that they're too fearful for no reason. Sheep by their nature are always in need of intimate care and nurture from their shepherd. We may think in the West of, of shepherds with dogs scurrying along a big pack of sheep from the back. This was not the case in the first century. Being a shepherd was a way of life for these people. It was a very intimate occupation. The shepherds would have actually known their sheep by name. And it sounds silly to us, but they, I was researching this, and it said that they would actually name them by what they looked like. Maybe one had a limp, so he'd be called Limpy, or a fluffy one, and he'd be called Fluffy. The shepherd knew his sheep intimately, and he led them from the front, and they knew him by name, so they would follow him. Today, we're actually looking at two I am statements. I am the door, and I am the good shepherd. These are the two. There's lots of debate. There's actually one big metaphor we're looking at today, that the good shepherd is the door. So that's why we're coupling them together. Some people will take them apart. I thought it would be best just to look at the text as a whole, because I really feel like um, they really speak together as who the shepherd is. So let us pray as we um, head into the text. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. And we get to come before you now, hearing more about you, and in turn, learning more about ourselves. And Father, we pray that this will not be simply an intellectual exercise, but Father, we would turn to you more in our lives. God, we need you here. We know without your spirit moving, this is all uh, void. Father, we pray you be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you've been to my house, uh, some of you have, you know that I have two little dogs. We have a Westie and a miniature Schnauzer. They're very small, white dogs, and they're 9 and 11. So we got our our oldest dog right before we got married, and then a couple years later we got another one. So in general, if I'm doing yard work, I can leave the gate open. They're old enough to where they're not going to run out of the gate, okay? 
So this last week, my sister lives in Carlsbad. She came and stayed with us, and she has two dogs that she got during quarantine. So you know what dogs are like at one? So I, this, this week, I had to be very careful with not leaving the gate open. A couple months ago when she stayed for the first time, I did that. I was working on the yard, and I just left the gate open, and they were gone. We were searching the neighborhood for them, like, like for a long time. You know, my dogs on occasion will do that, but it, it's, it's really rare. And this is, this is similar to the Christian walk, right? That you and me, without Jesus, we have wandered outside the gate. We are off on our own. We were wanderers. We are lost without a shepherd. Then Christ, he intervened on our behalf. He saved us. And if it weren't for our, the gate holding us in, we would leave. We would completely wander away from Jesus. But it is Jesus Christ, our gate, our door, who holds us close to him. We depend on his strength and his power. This is the beauty to me of Reformed theology right, right here. You know, I studied a lot of it in seminary. But this is the beauty, beautiful thing. That, that Jesus is the author of salvation, which means he is the keeper of salvation. If it were up to me, I would lose it. But salvation is not up to me. We see that we have a God who is a shepherd and a door that cares. So I put an outline in your uh, bulletin, if you have that here, so you kind of know where we're going for, for the sermon today. Um, the big theme that we're looking at is that we are called to trust a sacrificial shepherd. And we're really going to look at this in two places. We're going to look at his person. Who does Jesus claim to be in this text? He claims to be two things, the door first and then the good shepherd. Secondly, we're going to look at his work and what he does. So who he is and what he does is what we're looking at. So first, let's look at his person. We're going to start with the door. So if you have a Bible with you, we're just going to really going to walk top to bottom through the text. So look, let's look at verse 7 together. So Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. So here's the picture I want you to, to see when he's talking about this metaphor, that when sheep were sleeping at night, they would go into a fold, which was essentially a, 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 um, a stone wall enclosure with, uh, with like nails on top of it, essentially not allowing anyone to come in, okay? So the sheep would, at nighttime, the sheep would walk into this fold, a stone wall enclosure. I kind of thought, think from my western mind, like we are here in the desert, that it's like a, a, a wall like I have in my house, right, with spikes on the top of it so no one can come in. Now, the thing is that there was no door on these enclosures, that the fold just had an opening, and then there was a, a gate around it. How was it secured? It was secured by the shepherd himself. The shepherd at night would actually sleep across the, the gate. He would become the door. And Jesus explains here from the beginning that he is the door of his sheep. So we see that he is actually the protector. No one comes in and out of the fold except through him. That he is the protector of the ones that are in his care. So he's not only the way that the, the people enter into the people of God, but he's also the protector of the sheep under his care. So in verse 8, it speaks of thieves and robbers. 
And we didn't speak earlier about the context of John 10. I wanted to leave it till, till here. But essentially, in this time, Jesus was speaking against the Pharisees who were not following him. He said, you're supposed to be the under-shepherds. You're supposed to be the one that care for God's people. And you yourself, you're not even following me. So how are you going to care for God's people if you're not even following me yourself? So essentially, for our context now, we can see that this, this, this phrase, thieves and robbers, it, it, it can, we can relate it to anything that's leading us away from Jesus. Anything that's leading us away from the Lord, because that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were not taking the people towards the Lord, they were taking them away. So when it talks about thieves and robbers here, we can say that this is, this is anything that takes us away from the Lord. Now this is not saying in, in the passage that, that all who belong to Jesus will never wander away. If you've lived the Christian life for any amount of time, you know that not to be true about your own story. But like I was saying earlier, when salvation belongs to God, it's authored by him and held by him, we can never wander too far because he brings us back in because he is the one that keeps salvation. We are not. Calvin says this about this passage, for it is no light consolation and no small ground of confidence when we know that Christ, by his faithful protection, has always guarded his sheep. Amidst the various attacks and crafty devices of wolves and robbers, so that there never was one of them that deserted him. Never one. That's only possible if God is holding salvation in his hand, right? Is it due to their strength? Their ability as the sheep to come back to the shepherd? We saw the picture. They're not intelligent, right? They're not coming back on their own. It is up to God, to hold them, to keep them safe. Okay, let's look at verse 9. It says this, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, Jesus here, he again calls himself the door, and he he points to himself as being the one who has saved the sheep. It is only through Christ that the sheep are saved. It is only through Christ that they find pasture. But again, the thief is mentioned here. Who is the thief? Remember what I said, who is the thief? It's anything that leads us away from the Lord, anything that distracts us from the goodness of Jesus. But what does it say the thief's goal is? To kill and destroy. The thief and the robber is not in it for the good of the sheep. They're there to kill and destroy. We see the opposite true. What does it say that the text, what does the text say that Christ's goal is? That people may have life and have it abundantly. You know, this, this term in the West, abundance, we have to, we have to uh, articulate what we mean by that, right? What is the abundant life? Does it mean health and wealth and prosperity in this life now? That, that's actually the, nearly the opposite of the biblical description of what prosperity looks like. Abundant life through the biblical lens is first to know God through Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's the first thing, is to know God. That is abundance. And full abundance is to walk with him in this life and the life to come. There's no mention of no disease and a big bank account. It's all about knowing our creator. That's what abundant life is. So, so fullness of abundance, it's enjoying the richness of life in relationship to God. It's essentially the reversal of our natural state, that we have wandered away from God. And he said, come back. Have abundance. Let me bring you back to myself. So abundant life is living with our shepherd. So Sir George Adam Smith, he was a 19th century Old Testament scholar. He was um, in the Near East doing research uh, for his... um, for what he was doing for his research on in the Old Testament. And he said this, he was one day traveling with a guide and came across a shepherd and his sheep. This is in the 19th century. He fell into a conversation with this man. This man showed him the fold that he was going to take his sheep into. He said, this is where they sleep at night. And he said, is it? so the man said, that, that's where they sleep? That's where they go at night? He said, yes, to the shepherd. And when they are in there, they are perfectly safe. George said, but there's no door. The shepherd said, I am the door. He was not a Christian man. He was not speaking in the language of the New Testament. He was speaking from the the voice of an Arab shepherd's standpoint. He was saying, this is what it means to be a shepherd. Sir George looked at him and said, what do you mean by the door? The shepherd said this, When the light has gone and all the sheep are inside, I lay in the open space and there is no sheep that ever goes out but across my body. And no wolf that comes in unless he crosses my body. I am the door. That's what it meant to be a shepherd. That's what, when he's talking about I am the shepherd, I am the door, that's what Jesus was speaking about. So that's the first one. I, I am the door. That's the first portion of this text. The next point is, I am the good shepherd. Let's look at that in starting in verse 11. It says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We spoke about earlier, the duty of a shepherd was tiring. It was exhausting. It was intimate. He knew his flock very well. But Jesus here claims that the good shepherd, he lays down his life for his sheep. Now, this portion of the metaphor was not meaning that he was actually going to lay his life down. If you think about it, the, the sheep needed him. They needed him to stay there. But he was saying that, I will do everything for you. I am willing to lay my life down. But essentially, he was not speaking in the way that I am going to li- lay my life down because it would leave them vulnerable. But Jesus' language in this entire passage goes beyond the metaphor of a normal shepherd. He isn't just willing to die. He does die. He does lay down his own life for the sheep. And by his death, he doesn't expose the sheep like a shepherd actually was, but he brings them into the fold. He allows them to have freedom and salvation. 
And we'll look at that further when we see his work in 14 through 18. But, but John's language of, of laying down his life for the sheep, it brings us into this idea of sacrificial language that, that John uses. So in the original language, when John would use this idea of he's doing something for another person, he wasn't saying that this is an example for you to follow. I am Jesus, I'm going to do these things, so follow me and do it like this. He's not saying that. This is sacrificial language. He's saying, I am doing this for you. I am sacrificing for you. It's not exemplary. He's not calling us to do the same thing in this text. He's saying, I am going to sacrifice my life for your good. In verse 12, it says this, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So here in this part of the metaphor, he's essentially comparing himself to a hired hand. Now opposite of the thieves and robbers, the, the, thief, the hired hand is actually not an evil person. The hired hand is actually just set as a foil in the, in the metaphor. So a foil is a character that's there to show the opposite of who the person is, the main character is. So essentially in this text, the, the hired hand is just there to show what the, who, who is the opposite of the good shepherd. What is the opposite of the good shepherd? What would he do? The thieves and robbers, they were definitely wicked, but the hired hand, he's not presented in this way. He's simply more concerned for his own well-being than the well-being of the sheep. The hired hand, he's content with the job of caring for the sheep when he is paid to do so, but when there's danger, he says, I'm out of here. I'm not going to stay. I'm not going to lay my life down because I'm hired to do this. You're paying me $10 an hour, right? No, I'm not going to lay my life down for that. The hired hand is not a shepherd. He cares nothing. The text tells us this. He cares nothing for the sheep. When danger arises, the good shepherd stays. The hired hand flees. Why does the good shepherd stay? It's the opposite of what the text says. Because he cares for the sheep. He loves them deeply enough to lay his life down. So this first section, we see who is Jesus, his person. He is first, the door, the way into the fold and the protector of the fold. Secondly, he is the good shepherd, the self-sacrificing shepherd who cares for the well-being of you and me as his sheep. So I am in the early years of parenting. Many of you have gone way before me and have parented for a lot longer than I have. But right now, uh, I have a, a six and a five-year-old and a baby that should be here in a couple weeks. And often what I've been talking to my own children about when I'm, when I'm talking to them about changing their course of action, I say, this is what's best for you. That, what you're doing is not good for you. Like, I want you to, you're, you're over here, you're, you're hitting your sister, you're eating junk food, whatever it is. I want you to do this because this is better for you. This is how God has intended for you to live. As a six and five-year-old, how do you think that they respond to that often? That's not best for me. I want candy. I want to get vengeance on my sister. That's what they say. Like, they're honest, right? They're honest about that. Like, that's not the way I want to live. That's not the best thing for me. 
That's how we act towards God often, right? See, we're adults, so we're not going to scream at God's face and say, that's not best for me. We're going to say, okay, God, yeah, I'll I'll follow you. But functionally, we're going to go over here and say, no, my way is actually better. What, what, what? How I want to live is actually the better way. So we try to cover it up as adults. When actually might be better for us to say, no, God, and be honest with ourselves and say, that, that's what I'm saying. I'm not following the shepherd. I'm not following the way that he has called me to live. If you're like me, we, we often choose sin because we think it's the best way to live. We believe in our hearts that the way that we want to live is the best thing for us. We think inside that this will make me feel better. This will make me fulfilled. This will bring true joy. Now, this isn't always the case. We know there are times where we're struggling with addictions, different things that we know this is really bad. I don't want to do that, and you have to fight that. But often... it's not that. It's like, I I know what's best for me, God, so I'm going to live in this way. So, the root problem is not that we run from God. The root problem is not that we do this or that or whatever the sin may be. The root is, that is just the symptom of the main problem. The root problem here is that we believe that we know how to take care of ourselves more than God does. We trust ourselves more than God. I, I, I know you not say not to do this over here, Lord, but, but oh man, this, this, this is the way for me. When we, when we, but then, when we put all our efforts, a, lo- a lot of times in This is what I've done a lot of my life, and I'm finding it really not to be helpful at all. When we attack the symptoms of our rebellion, we say, I'll I'll stop being angry. I won't lust after that man or woman. I'll use my finances better. I'll love my spouse better. I'll be a better neighbor. When we do that, we're not getting at the root of the problem. We're just knocking down the weeds. So yesterday, we were out here on this, this property we don't own. It was looking really bad. So I said, let's just clear it out and make it look better. It's like as if we were not to go and pull every weed. We're not, and I was just going to take a weed whacker and just knock off the top of everything. Well, it's going to come back up because we're not getting at the root of the problem. But pulling the weed out, that thing's gone. It's completely gone. So we need to look below the problem. We need to look below the actual sin and say, where am I not trusting God? So how do you do that? First, that we, we have to know that Our sin is kind of like an onion, right? Like God will peel back just one at a time because that's all we can handle. Other times in life, he'll peel back several layers. In seminary, I feel like I I went into seminary as very prideful. It's not in my notes, but I'm going to tell you. (laughs) I went into seminary very prideful. I did not treat my wife as well as I should have by any means. And it felt like God cracked the onion open and he just spilled my guts and he said, Look at yourself. (laughs) You are prideful, Dawson. But often, we're like an onion that has not been peeled. We, We don't even peel back one layer. We don't even look at our own sin. So often, what it look, what this can look like is the first thing is 
you pray that, God, reveal my sin to me. Reveal to me where I'm not trusting you. And it, it can also come in the form of asking someone else, a friend, a spouse, a family member who knows you best. Open up. Say, where am I weak? Where do I need help? And then we go to the Lord and pray that he strengthens us, right? We go to his word and find strength there, knowing that we are his children. Even though we look at our sin, we say, I know, I, I, I am accepted, I am loved, I'm beloved because of what your son has done for me. So change me more and more. Often we'll look inside our own lives to find fulfillment. Say, this is my way over here. The dangerous thing is, our, our, we talked about this at Bible study a few weeks back, that our culture screams this at us. It totally screams this at us. It says, follow your heart. Be true to yourself. The culture is essentially saying, look inside of you. That's the right way to go. It's everywhere. I'm sorry I just told you that because you're going to watch a movie this afternoon and you're going to see it. <laughs> I remember the first time somebody told me that. I was sitting down with my kids. I forgot. It was, I was watching Frozen. You know, Frozen, you think, oh, it's a good like Disney movie. And I'm like, man, this thing is just like, just like covered in this. Individualistic. Look inside to find your worth. Look inside to find where you need to go. That's where you need to look is inside. The Bible actually tells us, look inside and what will you find? Sin. Thank you for responding. That's the right answer. You'll find sin. That's why we needed a Savior. We have to look outside of ourselves to find our direction, our comfort, our strength, our, content, our contentment. We have to look to God himself. God sent his son to be the door, the way into this life. He sent his son as the door to be our protector. As the good shepherd, he guides us, he directs us, he feeds us. When we look inside and follow ourselves, it will only lead us into the open flame like the sheep walks into. But when we look outside of ourselves and look to the shepherd, that is when we will be truly fulfilled. Okay, that's all of who, of who, God's, who Christ says he is in this passage. Let's look at verse 14. We're going to look at his work. What does he do now? What's the work that Christ does? Verse 14 says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay my life down for the sheep. So he's bringing again up from verse 11. He's coming into verse 14 and saying, let's bring up the sacrificial language again. Look what the shepherd does. He lays his life down for the sheep. But at the same time, there's a parallel context here. He's saying, yes, I'm going to lay my life down, but at the same time, I want to explain to you how intimate I know my sheep. So Christ says this. He says that just as much as I know my Father, the one who created the universe with me, that one who has eternally been in relationship with me, that's how well we know each other. Think about that. That's how much I know my sheep. He says, I know my sheep and they know me and they will forever listen to me. That is how the relationship with his father works. It's an intimate relationship that lasts 
all of time. And Christian, that's the relationship you have with Jesus. He knows you better than anyone else, and he says that we can know him better than anyone else. We know that our relationship with Christ, it's essentially grounded in the relationship that Christ has with his Father, which is an everlasting, intimate, and loving relationship. Okay, let's go on. Look at verse 16 with me. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So essentially, he is speaking about Judaism here, right? Later in the New Testament, it speaks of the gospel went to the Jews first and then to the Gentile. So he was going to save the people, the remnant of Israel, the Jewish people first through Christ, and then it would go out to the Gentiles. So unless you have Jewish blood in you somewhere, most of us in the room will be in the latter camp, will be Gentiles. So he's saying that God worked through the nation of Israel, essentially from Genesis 12 forward, but in the New Testament when Christ comes, it broadens. It's not just through this one nation. But what does he say? He says that that, the people of God now are not two different peoples of God. It's not the Old Testament people of God, the nation of Israel, and now the New Testament people of God who are the the saved Jews and then the Gentiles. No, it's one flock. We are engrafted into the people of God. We are now one with those who hang on to the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 17, let's look at that. He says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, and I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay my life down on my own accord. I have the authority to to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So we see here that Christ, he knows us, and we know him just like Christ knows the Father, and the Father knows him. But logically, we have to understand that the relationship between the Father and the Son is more foundational, right? Our relationship with Christ is is, is founded upon the relationship between God and the Father, because the Father sent the Son, and that's how we're in relationship to him. So it's always going to be foundational. This This is the beautiful thing about holding on to God as the author of salvation, Again, I feel like this text just bleeds it through the whole thing. It's just like, that the relationship I have with you, it's as good as the relationship I have with my own father, the, the sinless ones. Now, here in the passage, when it says, for this reason the father loves me, this is not saying that the father withholds love at any, at any point from the son unless he does this, but rather it says that the love of father is linked with his obedience and willingness to bear the shame and the agony and the pain that you and I deserved. In this text, when Christ says that I lay my life down, that I may take it up again. He's saying this. This is, should be best understood like as a purpose clause in the original language. He said, I'm taking it down with the purpose of, I'm sorry, I'm laying my life down with the purpose of bringing it back up. He had an end goal in mind. He did not just die to die. He died to take the penalty of sin with the purpose of beating death by raising himself up. For us, we should see that 
the life and death and resurrection. It is the climax of redemption history, and God is completely in control of it. There's not an ounce of history that God has not been in control of. Christ was obedient to the plan of his Father, and he was willing to die on our behalf. But he had the power and the ability over every situation. He could have busted off the cross if he wanted to. But we don't see that. We see how great the sacrifice was. He had the power to do otherwise. He didn't have to die on our behalf. God didn't have to send him. But he did. Because he cares for his sheep. The God who demands payment for sin, he provided the payment for us. The call is to trust to believe, to turn from sin, and to Jesus. So in 1943, amidst World War I, there were 903 troops and four chaplains that were on a ship that was headed across the Atlantic. And in this area, there were lots of German U-boats that were around. At midnight, 12 in the morning on February 3rd, a German torpedo ripped into the ship. This is what was said. She's going down, the men cried, scrambling for lifeboats. A young GI crept up to one of the chaplains. He said, I lost my life jacket. The chaplain said this, take it, take mine, you can have it. Before the ship sank, all four of the chaplains gave their life to another man, gave their life jacket to another man. The chaplains linked arms and lifted their voices in prayer as the ship went down. So we love stories of sacrifice, right? Think about this. I mean, it's in lots of movies. We love sacrifice, the idea of it. It it shows us, it it moves our soul. It shows that the person is brave. They love the other person. They, They show really godly character. But if you've been in the church for a while, this idea of Christ sacrificing for you can really easily become mundane. You can become like, oh yeah, of course he's going to preach about Jesus this morning. Of course he's going to talk about Jesus sacrificing for me. That is the core of the Christian doctrine. But for, for us, it's easy for us to say, yeah, Christ laid down his life for me and that doesn't really affect me all that much tomorrow. But my plea for you and for me this morning is that we would hear this truth that Christ sacrificed himself for you. And it wouldn't feel mundane. So let me tell you, this is Dawson's paraphrase of the redemptive history story. To wake us up a tad, okay? Here's, here it is. God created a perfect world. Two chapters later, mankind rebelled. In the Old Testament, that's called a high-handed sin. The illusion was to you're essentially slapping God in the face. So we slap God in the face in Genesis chapter 3, and just a couple verses later, he authors a plan and said, this is not going to be the end of my people. The people that just slap me in the face, I'm going to send my own son to die for them. That, That should move us. We slapped him in the face and continue to do so. Yet he he lays it all down. On our behalf. And Jesus, he, he lived the perfect life. He, 
He was punished for our sin by dying, and he beat death by going to the cross and raising again. So what does this mean for us this morning? My call to us is to believe and trust in him more than anything else. We look to the word, and as much as you've read it, we need to say, God, show me your face afresh today. In our passage today, he is the door. He is the way into salvation into the people of God and the protector over the sheep. He is the good shepherd, the sacrificial man who nourishes and lays down his life for the sheep. This is Jesus. The call is to trust him. Will you do that? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you often too quickly. These truths can become mundane quickly for us to hear them each week. And my prayer for me and for everyone in this room, that today we would see your face new. That we would see the sacrifice you made for us in a new way. That it would transform our lives. It would transform the way that we interact with our family, with our friends, with our neighbors, with our co-workers. Lord, that you, the truths of your gospel and how you have cared for, for us would influence to do the same to the other people around us so that they would come to see and know you. Father, your word, you tell us it is living and active. And we plead that when we leave this place, that this word would not fall from our ears, but it would penetrate into our hearts. That it would change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.